Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 51, Hugo Chavez, the lover. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Catfish who we catfish. Pluck the pickle when we pluck the pickle. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 16, Bart the Lover, which first aired on February 13, 1992. Now I'm going to be talking about Hugo Chavez's attempted coup in Venezuela on February 4, 1992, nine days before the Bart the Lover first aired, he led a failed coup against the government. We'll be learning all about Venezuela, so stay tuned for that. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're recording this on International Podcast Day. Quick shout out to a returning Don't Let's Chart with Ben and Phil, back for season three now on Patreon and soon everywhere else. Uh, or also now, depending on when this comes out and when they release it. You know what, you get you get the idea with that. Anyway, follow them on Twitter at, at Don't Let's Chart. I'd also like to recommend a new podcast. If you like Beatles, check out the Big Beatle Sortout, where Gary and Paul Abbott go through the order Coleoptera and tell you about their favourite shelled... Oh, 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 sorry, that's a typo. It is, of course... The Big Beatles sort out, where Gary and Paul Abbott go through every Beatles song at random and work out where they all sit in a big list. I really like it, and you can follow them at at big underscore sort. And of course, in the spirit of the day, thanks go out to Looks Unfamiliar, the head ballet podcast, It's Good Accepted Sucks, Last Match Standing, Atletico Mints, and all of the usual podcasts I've been kept sane by during this lockdown period. So, the episode first aired on February 13th, 1992, which I've literally just noticed is the day before Valentine's Day. But Gareth, I hear you cry, what was the UK number one that day? Well, still wet, wet, wet. But at number two, eventually heading to number one, but we'll do it now anyway, it's Shakespeare's sister with Stay. The duo consist, not consisted, they are a going concern as we will find out, of Marcella Detroit and, oh God help me, I have never managed to pronounce this next lady's surname correctly in my entire life, but I'm going for Siobhan Fahey. And if you're listening, I'm so sorry, I have a name that is repeatedly misspelled and mispronounced, I know exactly how annoying it is, and I hope I'm at least in the area with that one. And and if you are listening, uh, please tell me if I've got it badly wrong, and if so, I'm more than happy to buy you a drink to apologise. Um, although you'll have to put up with my doe-eyed admiration and a number of probably boring questions about your time in Banana-Rama. For you see, that is exactly where Siobhan originally came to prominence. Now, we're not going to cross paths with the Rama on this podcast, but worth noting that I think they're just fantastic. Springing as they did from London's punk scene as backing vocalists of choice for All and Sundry, including Funboy 3, with whom they collaborated on It Ain't What You Do, It's The Way That You Do It, and really saying something in their early days, giving both bands a nice little boost. From that beginning, they became a pivotal band in 80s UK pop, racking up 28 top 50 singles in their career, and 
More surprisingly, given I carp on most weeks about how badly British acts tended to do in the US, 11 Billboard Hot 100 appearances, including a US number one, with their cover of Venus, originally released in 1969 by the Dutch band Shocking Blue. And it's here we get our unlikely crossover with Nirvana, whose debut single was also a Shocking Blue cover, Love Buzz. Worth noting, by the way, that Bananarama never had a UK number one, although they basically lived at number three for several years. Anyway, they were a great pop band, but Siobhan left in 1988 due to musical differences and formed Shakespeare's sister as a solo project, with much input from Detroit, who was born Marcella Levy, but came from Detroit, which is as good a reason for a musical surname change as any. Now, she'd been going a fair bit as well, including co-writing a song with Eric Clapton in the late 70s and releasing a solo album in 82. She was looking to get away from being a backing vocalist, but was originally more of a collaborator than a member of Shakespeare's sister, although she started being credited as such before their second single, Your History, hit the UK top 10. Stay is the second single from their second album, Hormonally Yours. This will top the UK charts for eight weeks. Now, I think that gets forgotten in this era of Brian Adams, Meatloaf, Wet, 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 you know, these kind of 10-plus-week reigns atop the chart. That's actually, especially by today's standards, a very lengthy run. Its success could at least partially be attributed to the spectacular, for the time, music video featuring the two members of the band apparently locked in a life-and-death struggle over the soul of a comatose man. (laughs) I'm going to have to look that up now. I haven't seen that for decades. It's, it's probably still worth the watch, to be fair. But you know what? Since we might not talk about them again, it's probably worth mentioning that the band went on hiatus not long after this, and Detroit was apparently essentially sacked at the Ivan Novello Awards in 1993. It continued as Siobhan's solo project, but I'm pleased to find that the pair have since reconciled and toured together last year. So there's nice. Really? Returning to the episode, this had a US viewership Nielsen of 12.9, which is approximately 11.88 million homes. Very precise there. 29th for the week, but only second on Fox. Yes, Married with Children steals the crown again. Production number was 8F16, and the credited writer is John Vitti, as we discussed in episode two, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ. There is no chalkboard gag as we go straight from the title to Homer pulling into the driveway. And the couch gag is the one with that alien that isn't quite Kang and Kodos or a space mutant. It's weirdly jarring for me to watch a series with established alien designs use a slightly off-model one. That's just me being particular, I guess. What actually happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to live in a world without zinc. <laughs> I, I can't believe that this joke was so early in the show's run. It's got a real feel of season six to eight about it in retrospect, but here it is. In the elementary school, they are watching an assumedly ancient film strip about Zinc. We join it towards its conclusion, but clearly the main character, Jimmy, has wished to live in a world without Zinc for reasons unknown. (laughs) This means he can't start his car, phone his girlfriend to tell her he can't start his car, or even shoot himself in the face to escape the horrors of a Zinc-free world. Can I just say how dark that is? We're, we're like, what, 30 seconds into the episode and already we've got someone trying to shoot themselves in the head. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Um, luckily, it was all a horrible dream and he wakes to a world full of telephones, car batteries and handguns. <laughs> <laughs> 
The kids can't wait to get out of there, but Mrs. Krabappel is happy to stay and answer follow-up questions about zinc, help them with their homework, or just chat. And we find out why as we follow her to her life. Soup for one, a scratch and win, sugar in the gas tank courtesy of her ex-husband, and a small apartment. It's basically my life, except I don't drive and she has a really nice grey cat. Obviously quite bereft of company, she decides to take out a personal ad to see if she can find new love. For all our young and hip listeners, uh, you're probably too young to remember personal ads, so you know, think of it as a glacially slow version of Tinder. We cut to the school again, and Principal Skinner is feebly introducing an assembly to a rowdy hall. It's a brazen promotional presentation by the Twirl King Yo-Yo Company, introduced by Ted Carpenter. Twirl King are clearly struggling to engage kids in the nascent video gaming era and put on a show with maximum razzle-dazzle that has the whole school yo-yoing the next day. But Tom, can you name the Twirl King champions? Ah, I wondered where the list would come in. Okay, there's Mr. Amazing, Sparkle, Zero Gravity, the Cobra. Is that it? Is, is, yes, is there another one? absolutely. Four, four out of four. Yes, yes. Um, I have issues with the name Mr. Amazing, as his gimmick seems to just be that he has a lot of yo-yos, uh, and the <laughs> others have have better tricks. I think he's got uh, he's got too easy a ride in the whole thing. Sparkle is not the original Sparkle, as it turns out. Um, her trick is yo-yoing with her ears, assumedly through piercings, which would have turns turns my stomach a bit as somebody who used to have pierced ears. Like a strong enough gust of wind had me bleeding. Zero gravity yo-yos upwards rather than downwards. Is that actually possible? Drop us a tweet if you know. <laughs> He's also seen yo-yoing on a trampoline towards the end, and the cobra yo-yos with his tongue. Again, impressive if possible, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that can't be done. Prove me wrong, world. Prove me wrong. But as it turns out, yo-yoing is something that Bart is A, interested in, and B, really good at immediately. And even Homer is hoping to quit his job and live off the boy until Marge asks him to think of a person that got rich doing yo-yo tricks. Tom, sorry, I know we just did one, but this next list is an absolute murderer's row. Who are the three people he thinks of before realizing that they didn't get rich doing yo-yo tricks? Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me this. I can't remember the first one. The second one is Donald Trump. You know, back when the idea of him being in any sort of position of power was just ludicrous. And the last one is in prison for quite a long time. Absolutely. And and soon to join him, Donald Trump, America's white supremacist supporting president who is a tax cheat and a failed businessman. Whether he actually got rich at all, let alone doing yo-yo tricks, is is uh, somewhat in the haze these days. The, the second person was um, Arnold Palmer popular golfsman um, oh, yeah which uh, i i feel like he's in really poor company here I, I feel sorry for Arnold palmer being a part of this list and the third one is dr hibbert so uh there we go back at school edna is sick and tired of talking about yo-yos as am i frankly i've said yo-yo more times in the last five minutes than any other point in my life and it's lost all meaning now bart chooses exactly the wrong time to pluck the pickle getting his newest trick badly wrong and killing Stinky and Wrinkles, the classroom fish, in the process. Edna confiscates his yo-yo and gives him a month's detention. Perhaps she's cranky due to her dating situation. We next see her out on the town with Jasper Beardley, of all people. In detention, Bart is used for odd jobs. 
But when Edna goes off to drink in the teacher's lounge, quickly marking everyone's work as a bee in a lovely flourish, Bart retrieves his yo-yo and discovers her personal ad. He writes her a letter, and when looking for a nom de plume, he sees a picture of Woodrow Wilson on the wall. Because Bart knows Edna so well, it's not difficult for him to create a compelling character, and she is hooked. Suddenly, eight minutes in, hark, a B-plot hoves into view. The dog is cold, and Marge wants to buy a doghouse. Homer doesn't want to spend the money, and once again vastly overestimates his DIY skills, although his blueprint seems pretty much on the money, even including the sun shining down on the house. (laughs) More on this development soon. Bart gets his first letter back to Woodrow, containing a, a very candid photo of his teacher and a request for a photo of himself. Now, Bart has used up his A material and is forced to turn to other people for help. Lisa just teases him, but studying colorization theatre helps. And Marge is also more helpful, showing him a postcard Homer sent her from the Duff Brewery. In our second, oh, it's this one moment of the episode. He's able to crib something useful from Homer's ramblings at least, and Bart's actually grown closer to Edna, platonically of course, meaning he's got plenty of material. But what to do for a photo? A well-placed copy of NHL Stars of 1969 provides a photo of Gordie Howe, and the rest is history. Meanwhile, Homer is predictably struggling to construct a doghouse, and turning the air blue as he does so. This is overheard by Todd Flanders, who apes it at dinner that evening, opining that he doesn't want any damn vegetables. (laughs) In our third, oh, it's this one moment of the Mm -hmm. episode. This leads Ned to launch an investigation, after consulting the Reverend, of course, and tracing the swearing back to Homer. They make a pact. Homer will try to give the sailor talk the old heave-ho if Flanders shaves off his moustache, the latter condition springing from Homer just being a jerk, frankly. Thus, is a swear jar set up. Woodrow invites Edna to the Gildic Truffle, and Bart sees her turn up, knowing what's coming, but opts to drop into the adjacent Springfield Aztec Theatre, no longer closed for repairs, it would seem, to watch Ernest Needs a Kidney. When he comes out, Edna is still there, and for the first time, the enormity of his axe hits him, albeit partly at first. Before that, we get a swear jar compilation from Homer, Accidentally putting a 20 in the collection plate, a near strike in bowling, hearing that a stash-free Flanders has got an acting job, forgetting to put a door on the doghouse, and, best of all, a random beehive drop. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Tom, brace yourself. In honour of this excellent episode, we're doing a third quiz. At this point, Bart talks to Edna about the men from the school that she could date instead. Can you name them? And for bonus points, why she rules them out? Right, well, there's Seymour Skinner, uh, whose mummy won't let him out to play. Yep. There's a coach someone um, who who has a drink problem. Yep. And there's groundskeeper Willie, who she isn't even going to tell him what, what he's into. I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yep. I'm going to give you six out of six for that. Uh, I had to look up. It's Coach Fortner, apparently, uh, according to the to the script. But, yeah, I I feel like it's an ambiguous performance. And and yes, the alcoholism is represented by by lines in the script. Glug, glug, glug. 
uh, <laughs> and accompanying hand gesture. Bart is the closest thing to a man in her life, and he realizes he needs to make this right as quickly as he possibly can. But before we get there, we see that Homer has managed to channel his rage into vandalism rather than swearing now. As a nice surprise, Homer uses the swear jar money to buy a doghouse and some beer. How did she know? With the families to get this factor through the roof, Bart comes clean and they write a final letter to Edna together. One that lets her down gently and at least semi-plausibly. And we close with Gordie Howe's NHL record. My word. (laughs) Zinc, big chewy pretzels and damn vegetables. This is this is the golden age. This is this is amazing. It's got a main plot that's funny. It has genuine heart. It's coupled with semi-related material that is rarely short of hilarious. Um, I didn't even mention Marge's dad's swearing nearly costing him his job as a baby photographer. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mention Homer's breakup lines in the, in the final section when he's he's writing the letter. I, I could have gone on for a lot longer, and I'm conscious I've already gone on for quite a while. Tom, what do you reckon? Oh, yeah, it's great. There's there's lots of great little bits of animation as well. I love it when Mrs. Crabapple puts the yo-yo in the drawer and the camera is then in the drawer. So you see the drawer close from the camera that's in the drawer. That that looks really nice. And also, um, they've got a brilliant Bartism in there, which is after he breaks the fish tank and Mrs. Crabapple finds the yo-yo in the fish tank and the string leading to Bart's finger. And he goes, I didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. And just lines like groundskeeper Willie with the fish, then saying, don't worry, lass, they're off to a better place. Flush. (laughs) Amazing. There's just no wasted motion in this one, is there? It's everything. Everything hits. Everything hits. Amazing stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So, would you like to hear about a character debut? Oh, yes. Well, debuting this week is... Gordy Howe! Okay, yeah, look, it's another desperate week here. But I do want to pause and mention that he is a genuine giant of ice hockey, and I, I didn't realise this when this was originally on. This isn't an obscure randomer we're talking about. His nickname was Mr. Hockey. <laughs> he played in the NHL the pinnacle of North American ice hockey in five consecutive decades from the 1940s to the 1980s and actually played a game in 1997 as well, albeit in the IHL rather than the NHL. So he's played professional hockey in six decades. Unsurprisingly, he still holds the NHL records for most games played and most seasons played and did hold the records for most goals, most assists and most points scored, all of which were broken by Wayne Gretzky who I'd say is probably the most famous ice hockey player ever for just that reason. So I don't think there's any shame in losing to him. My favorite Gordy fact, though, is that there is an achievement in ice hockey named after him. The Gordy Howe hat trick is awarded to a player who manages a goal, an assist, and a fight in the same match. <laughs> That's good. Although it's named after him, Howe only actually did it twice although that was in just over six months in the early 1950s. So he was an early trendsetter. There's a player called Rick Totchett, on the other hand, who has 18 of them and is the (laughs) all-time leader. 
I recommend looking it up as there's, there's all kinds of weird achievements around it. There's at least two occasions where players on opposing sides have completed their Gordy Howe hat trick by having a fight with each other. Um, <laughs> and in 2018, someone playing their second NHL game ever managed one with their first ever goal, first ever assist and first ever fight. <laughs> that is superb. <laughs> So uh, it's on some did you knows. Mm-hmm. Um, this one will probably not come as a surprise. It's Marsha Wallace's turn to win an Emmy for this one for her performances as Edna, which is fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and absolutely uh, deserved. I would say uh, Edna buys Chef Lonely Hearts soup for one, and thanks to the wonders of HD TV and undistorted freeze frames, I can tell you her chosen flavour was chicken noodle. I like chicken noodle soup. I don't actually like chicken, but I like chicken noodle soup. (laughs) Good low-calorie choice. High in sodium, though, so watch out for that. Woodrow is voiced by Harry Shearer, who apparently based the voice on the actor Ricardo Montalban, who is mentioned very briefly in Season 4, Episode 9, Mr. Plough, but is probably best known for his work as... Khan! Khan! (laughs) in Star Trek Season 1, Episode 22, Space Seed, and the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Finally, Gordie Howe was the second choice for Woodrow's photo, picked by Al Jean, who was a fan of the Detroit Red Wings, for whom Howe played only a mere 25 or so seasons. (laughs) The first choice? Hang on to your hats. It was none other than the NFL's Johnny Unitas. But Ooh. as it turns out, he uncoolly charges people to use his image. Oh, denied. He will appear, though, first endorsing the crusty moustache removal system in Season 6, Episode 15, Homie the Clown, which I've completely forgotten about. But most memorably, in flashback to Super Bowl 1, with a haircut you can set your watch to, in Season 7, Episode 8, Mother Simpson. Tom, you've warned me that this is going to be a substantial memeable moments. Let's uh, let's bite that bullet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, quite literally here, because yeah, I've gone for five. You could argue there's more, but I've gone for five real clear cut ones. So the first one, as we've said, appears in the first thirty seconds of the show, which is the "Come back, Zinc, come back," which is how we're all going to be in about three months' time. Come back, single market. Come back, customs union. Come, come back. You know, when when, uh, when, when we're all going to need permits to get into Kent and there's going to be queues for food and whatever else, which will be fun. It's quite lucky I don't really want to go to Kent, isn't it? But, uh, mm. Apologies to any Kentish listeners there. <laughs> okay, second one uh, is whichever one of the Flanders kids is saying, I said I don't want any damn vegetables. That's become a favourite of people, especially when he narrows his eyes near the end. Then you have Homer's love letter, which is <laughs> the, the, the way it ends with, I got these big drums, $5, get out of here. Anytime you see anyone write anything incomprehensible, it immediately gets compared to that postcard, which is great. Then I've got something that we haven't really talked about, which is when Homer's helping to write the final letter to Edna, 
then he then he goes right this sort of thing is my speciality dear baby welcome to dumpville population you good example of this was when Theresa may stepped down as tory leader <laughs> <laughs> dear Theresa, welcome to dumpville population you so there you go that's my memeable moments this episode absolutely packed with them it's fantastic brilliant okay so as i understand we're heading on down venezuela way we are indeed okay then my bit right before i get going i need to offer a correction so last time when we were mired in self-pity while talking about the maastricht treaty that was an awful experience i said nothing else happened in february 1992 and that was completely wrong because on february the 4th 1992 Hugo Chavez led an attempted coup against the government of the South American country of Venezuela. So let's start, as we always do, with the political geography. Where exactly are, to quote Dave Lister, the oil-rich coastal lowlands of Venezuela? Well, Venezuela is on the north coast of South America. It sort of forms a T-shape, with Colombia to the west, Brazil to the south, and Guyana to the east. And Guyana is a bit of a weird one because it's generally classed as being part of the Caribbean, yet it's on the South American mainland. So, you know, for cricket, it's considered part of the West Indies, that sort of thing. But anyway, more or less slap bang in the middle of Venezuela's northern coast is the capital and largest city, Caracas. Off the coast are a few independent island nations. Well, they're independent of Venezuela anyway. To the northeast, these are Curacao, where the drink comes from, if you've ever had Bob's Blue. Mm-hmm. And there's also Aruba, and I remind people that it's not feasible to construct a super train between Springfield and Aruba. To the northeast lies Trinidad and Tobago, with with Trinidad and Tobago and Venezuela separated by just six miles of sea. You know, they are that close to each other. So, on to the history. Now, as we all know, on a subsequent voyage, Christopher Columbus discovered the continent of South America. Yowie. Well, of course, he didn't discover it. There were already people living there, but he was the first European to lay eyes on it. He landed in the Gulf of Paria in 1498, and colonizers arrived a few years later. The first European settlement in Venezuela was Nuevo Toledo, now Cumana, founded by Franciscan friars in 1515. Colonization of Venezuela was not easy for the Spanish, as they encountered resistance from the indigenous people that lived there. Some of the indigenous groups were the Arawak and Carib people. The explorer Amerigo Vespucci, who America is supposedly named after, observed people living in houses on stilts in lakes. So he named the region Little Venice, or Venezuela in Spanish. So that's where Venezuela gets its name from. So from 1527, Venezuela was made a part of the Spanish Empire. However, the next year, it was temporarily transferred to someone else. I just want to see if you can guess who that was, which nation, which country. Hmm. Okay. Something tells me it's not going to be a local one because it wouldn't be much of a, much of a question if it wasn't. I'm going to go with Portugal. Well, you're on the right continent. It was actually Germany. Ah, that was my second choice. Well, not Germany as such, because Germany didn't exist back then. But but this is really, really weird. So Spanish king, Charles V, 
had racked up a lot of debt to the Welser banking family of the free imperial city of Augsburg, which these days, of course, is in Germany. In exchange for forgiving the debt, Charles V gave colonial rights over Venezuela to the Welser family, who renamed it Welserland. Whilst there, they set up sugar plantations and brought with them 4,000 African slaves. Nothing funny about that. However, that wasn't the real reason why a German banking family wanted a chunk of South America. Oh, no. The real reason they wanted it was to go looking for El Dorado. No, not a terrible 90s soap opera, but the fabled Lost City of Gold. Also not to be confused with the absolutely terrible mid-80s cartoon, The Mysterious Cities of Gold. Yes, yes, I was wondering if you mentioned that. Okay, so the first Captain General of the Territory, Ambrosius Ehinger, led expeditions to Lake Maracaibo, where he fought fierce battles with the Coquivacoa people. In one of these battles, he ended up with a poisoned dart in his neck and died. They wouldn't be the first. Many German explorers died after encountering the natives and or from contracting tropical diseases such as malaria. The German governments of the colony broke down and Spain re-established its control in 1546. Obviously, El Dorado was never found. The present-day capital Caracas was founded in 1567, originally with the catchy name of Santiago de Leon de Caracas. It was founded by the Spanish captain Diego de Losada, who managed to play the native tribes off against each other in order to conquer the area around the city. Caracas became the capital of Venezuela province just 10 years after it was founded. For the next couple of hundred years, the main interest that the Spanish had in Venezuela was using the coast to shelter their ships from the elements and piracy. They had little concern for the interior at first. However, mining and cocoa plantations changed all that. Slaves were imported from Africa to do the work, and the economy of the region took off. In 1777, the region became the Captaincy General of Venezuela, which had more autonomy than it did previously. The idea was to counter any threats of invasion, but calls for full independence soon grew. Enter one Simon Bolivar. Now, Chavez was, shall we say, mad keen on Simon Bolivar, so I think it's only fair we spend a bit of time on him. He was born in 1783 in Caracas during the time of the Captaincy General. He was from a wealthy family, so he was sent away to be educated in Spain and France. While in Europe, he came across Enlightenment ideas and witnessed Napoleon being crowned King of Italy in 1804. Shortly afterwards, the Peninsula War sent Spain into turmoil. People in cities across South America saw the opportunity for independence from Spain, and Caracas was no different. On April the 19th, 1810, the Captain General of Venezuela, Vicente Emparan, was forced to resign in the events of the Venezuelan Revolution. He was immediately followed by the Supreme Hunter of Venezuela. Their taking power sparked the Venezuelan War of Independence, where people either sided with the Hunter or pledged their allegiance to the King of Spain. The Hunter called a Congress, and the Congress, following calls from Simon Bolivar, adopted a Declaration of Independence on July 5th, 1811, creating the First Republic of Venezuela. The war continued, and following an earthquake on March 26th, 1812, the Royalists were in the ascendancy. The Battle of San Mateo proved decisive, and the First Republic officially came to an end on July 25th, 1812. Having been defeated in Venezuela, Bolivar moved west to the United Provinces of New Granada. This territory roughly corresponded to modern-day Colombia, and it too had recently declared independence from Spain. 
Bolivar amassed his forces and marched across the border to Caracas in what is known as the Admirable Campaign. At the time, royalist forces were indiscriminately massacring independent supporters. In response to this, Bolivar issued his infamous Decree of War to the Death, stating that it was absolutely fine to kill anyone who was Spanish-born and didn't support independence. Bolivar retook Caracas on August 6, 1813, earning him the title of El Libertador, or The Liberator. This was somewhat ironic because he then established the Second Republic of Venezuela with himself as a military dictator. <sighs> However, the Second Republic didn't last either, and Bolivar was forced to flee to Jamaica. While there, someone tried to kill him, so he fled from Jamaica to Haiti. At the time, Haiti was split in two, see episode 26, Homer versus Lisa and Jean-Bertrand Aristide for more on that. Bolivar met with the president of Southern Haiti, Alexandre Petion. In return for military help, Bolivar promised to free the African slaves in Venezuela. With a new force of Haitian soldiers, Bolivar invaded Venezuela. He took the city of Angostura, where the bitters come from, but the civil war raged on. Bolivar established another congress in Angostura, and it elected him president. From there, he consolidated his power, finally entering Caracas again on June the 29th, 1821. With his allies in the West in control of what would become Colombia, the state of Gran Colombia was proclaimed on September 7th, 1821. With Gran Colombia established, Bolivar turned his attention south. Bolivar's army entered Quito, the capital of modern-day Ecuador, on June 16th, 1822. Two years later, the Congress of Peru named him their dictator. In 1825, Bolivar's forces wrestled control of the region around the city of Sucre from the Spanish, and the Congress of Peru declared it to be the country of Bolivia, naming it after Bolivar himself. So there you go, that's why Bolivia is called Bolivia. Ah. Over the next five years, Gran Colombia broke apart and Bolivar stepped down as president in 1830. Gran Colombia was succeeded by the states of Venezuela, New Granada and Ecuador. Bolivar prepared to live out the rest of his life in exile in Europe, but died of TB on December 17th, 1830. As for Venezuela, 1859 saw the Federal War, a civil war which saw conservatives fighting for control of the country against liberals. It lasted until 1863, and it's estimated that over 100,000 people died in it. The population of Venezuela would have been about 800,000 back then, so this ridiculous loss of life. Anyway, 1895 saw a crisis emerge between Venezuela and the UK. The UK was still in control of British Guyana, the territory to the east of Venezuela, and the Venezuelan government argued that the territories of Essequibo and Guyana Essequiba were in fact theirs. They tried to get the USA involved, as they were well aware of the Monroe Doctrine the American policy that tried to see European powers stop getting involved directly in the affairs of South America. In somewhat of a climb down, the British agreed to mediation with the USA overseeing it. The Tribunal of Arbitration, sitting in Paris, gave the UK about 90% of disputed territory. Which is nice. The end of the 20th century turned out to be pretty tumultuous. The government had run up huge debts to the major European powers. In 1899, a military coup led by Cipriano Castro seized power in Caracas. Castro had no intention of paying these debts, and he defaulted on them. This led to Venezuela being blockaded by Britain, Germany and Italy in the Venezuela crisis of 1902. 
1908, another crisis broke out when Castro defaulted on debts to the Netherlands. This time, Castro left for treatment in Germany, and he was quickly overthrown by his right-hand man, Juan Vicente Gomez. Gomez would remain the military dictator of Venezuela until he died in 1935. So he was in power for a good long time. In the early 20th century, vast deposits of oil were discovered in Lake Maracaibo. As oil became a hugely important energy source, the economy of Venezuela transformed and boomed, having the highest GDP per capita in Latin America by the time of Gomez's death. After Gomez died, the dictatorship continued, but things became a bit more relaxed under the dictatorship of Isaias Medina Angarita, and political parties were allowed. Angarita was overthrown in 1945 by a civilian military coup and democratic elections, the first free and fair elections in Venezuela, made Romulo Gallego the president. However, he was overthrown just a year later in a military coup led by Perez Jimenez. Despite sitting on huge oil wealth, the public debt of Venezuela soared. Jimenez was kicked out in 1958 and democracy restored. The presidency was won by the candidates from the Democratic Action Party in 1958 and 1963, but Rafael Caldera won the presidency for his Copay Party in 1968, marking the first peaceful democratic transfer of power in Venezuela. The books were balanced and the foreign debt managed. Carlos Andres Perez won the election in 1974, and his first term as president coincided with the aftermath of the Arab-Israeli War, or the Yom Kippur War, as it's also known. This saw oil production in Saudi Arabia decrease, causing the price of oil to shoot up dramatically. Venezuela saw a huge increase in its own oil revenues, which led to increases in public spending, but also an increase in external debt. For some reason, the Venezuelans thought this was going to be a permanent thing. Of course it wasn't. The price of oil collapsed in the early 80s. In order to face its financial obligations, the government started to devalue its currency, the Bolivar. This led to a huge drop in living standards as the economic crisis permeated. Carlos Andres Perez won a second term in 1989 and instigated a wave of neoliberal reforms in an attempt to get the economy under control. February 1989 was marred by the Caracazo riots, which started out as a protest against these reforms, but saw an increase in the price of petrol. The authorities clamped down on these protests and hundreds were killed. Perez was unpopular and the economy struggled in the early 90s. Enter stage right one Hugo Chavez. Yes, we finally got to him. Chavez was born in 1954, the son of a school teacher. He was sent to live with his grandmother when he was a teenager as there wasn't a high school where his parents lived. At the age of 17, he enrolled in the Venezuelan Academy of Military Sciences. Outside of the academy, he played baseball for the Criolitos de Venezuela team. As part of his academy training, he got to travel a bit, visiting Peru and Panama. He was friends with the son of Omar Torrios, the military dictator of Panama, and he got to travel to Panama to meet him. Remember the title Torrios gave himself? We talked about it back in episode four. There's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. You remember what it was? No, it wasn't Maximum Leader, was it? It Remember was. Mixed up. Ah, no, fantastic. No, you're right, you're right. You're right. Uh, Torrios was the Maximum Leader of Panama. It sounds just like something out of Star Wars. Anyway, after graduation, Chavez's first posting was to a counterinsurgency unit in Baroness. While there, he found a cache of left-wing books which had been abandoned by the people he was supposed to be fighting. I mean, Chavez was left-leaning by this point anyway, but by his own admission, those books cemented his position. 
1977, he set up a revolutionary movement within the army, the ELPF. Five years later, he founded a secretive cell called the Bolivarian Revolutionary Army 200, which I think was also a Beastie Boys splinter group. Taking inspiration from Simon Bolivar, Chavez renamed it the Revolutionary Bolivarian Movement 200, or MBR 200 for short. Throughout the 80s, Chavez recruited members of the army to his cause, often cadets who he had personally trained. Chavez reached the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, acting as an assistant to General Rodriguez Ochoa. With the election of Perez and Venezuela embarking on reforms wanted by the International Monetary Fund, the army were brought in to quell the Caracazo riots. Chavez himself did not take part because he was hospitalised with chickenpox, apparently. After the riots, Chavez began preparing a coup, which he named Operation Zamora. In the early hours of February 4th, 1992, nine days before Bart the Lover first aired, Chavez put his plan into action. Units under his command took control of the Miraflores Palace, that's the official residency of the president, the Defence Ministry, La Carlotta Military Airport and the Military Museum. However, Perez quickly learned about the coup after flying in from Davos, Switzerland, and was sped away in a car without its lights on. He was taken to the palace before Chavez's troops could take control of it. The guards on the door of the palace were supposed to be part of the conspiracy, but they turned against it and fired on one of Chavez's armoured vehicles. This led to a firefight in which three of Perez's bodyguards died, but Perez himself evaded capture and escaped. Chavez himself was in the military museum, and he ended up being completely cut off from the rest of his forces. However, the coup was not limited to Caracas. Other parts of the army loyal to Chavez had taken control in cities such as Valencia, Maracaibo and Maracay with civilian help. Chavez gave himself up and was allowed on TV to broadcast to the nation, calling on the rest of his troops throughout the country to stand down. So this address was really weird. As an outside observer, to me, it feels like a football manager being interviewed after his team has just been knocked out of the FA Cup. <laughs> Honestly, it's so odd. But for most Venezuelans, the address was the first time that many of them saw Hugo Chavez. In his address, he said the following, in, in Spanish, of course. Unfortunately, for the moment, the objectives that we had set for ourselves have not been achieved in the capital. That's to say that those of us here in Caracas have not been able to seize power. Where you are, you have performed well, but now is the time for a rethink. New possibilities will arise again, and the country will be able to move definitively toward a better future. Thousands of Venezuelans saw that on TV and thought, yes, this guy has a point. So from then on, he was seen by many as a champion of the poor and a fighter for social justice. After the coup attempt, Chavez was taken to the San Carlos military stockade. Oddly enough, there was a second attempt at a coup in Venezuela in 1992 that everyone seems to have forgotten about. On November 27th, a group within the army who had contact with Chavez while he was in prison launched an attack on the state-run TV station Venezolana de Televisión and broadcast a message from Chavez calling for people across the country to rise up against the government. However, Perez simply broadcast an address on another channel straight away saying that the coup had failed. The plotters did manage to take control of the Air Force, bombing several targets, including Vimela Flores Palace, before the government took back control. They also attempted to break Chavez out of prison, but this failed and they tried to take off the Peru before being intercepted. The second coup was actually much more deadly than the first, with 172 people, possibly more, losing their lives, as opposed to 67 who died during the February coup. As for Chavez, he wasn't in prison for very long. 
There were protests outside San Carlos, so he was moved to the much larger Yare prison. However, he wouldn't be in prison for long. In November 1992, the investigative journalist Jose Vicente Rangel discovered that President Perez was misappropriating 250 million bolivars. This was taken up by Venezuelan Attorney General Ramon Escobar Salom, and on May 20th, 1993, the Supreme Court found the accusations valid. The next day, the Senate voted to strip Perez of his immunity from prosecution, and on August 31st, the National Congress voted to permanently remove Perez from office. In the subsequent election, Rafael Caldera was elected president again, as he was already president about 20 years before. Now, it's believed, this is a fairly controversial thing to say, but it's believed that Chavez wanted to overthrow Perez and install Caldera in his place. Now, whether that's true or not, what definitely happened is that Caldera pardoned Chavez and the rest of the MBR 200 members who were in prison on condition that they did not return to the army, which is quite a suspect thing to do for, you know, a military leader who's just read, who, who led a coup like about a year ago. So instead of returning to the army, Chavez took up a civilian life and toured the country, gaining support. He also toured nearby countries, including Cuba, where he became friends with Fidel Castro. In July 1997, Chavez founded the MBR Party, or the Fifth Republic Movement. By the time of the 1998 elections, the political landscape in Venezuela had turned on its head. Before then, winning candidates had come from the Democratic Action or COPE parties. The public had lost confidence in both of them, and Chavez was polling at anything between 30 and 40 percent. So both parties threw their weight behind Henrique Salas Roma, a Yale-educated economist. Chavez won the election with 56.2% of the popular vote, completing his journey from failed coup leader to president. Now, I'd just like to say a little bit about what happened next, because, you know, a lot happened when Chavez was president of Venezuela. So these are just some very edited highlights. Chavez made his intentions clear from the start. When he was sworn in, he deviated from the script, calling the constitution moribund. He launched the Plan Bolivar 2000, a program that was intended to get the military to do things like repair roads and public buildings. The plan was closed a couple of years later amid accusations of corruption and embezzlement. Despite what the opposition feared, Chavez definitely wasn't a hardcore communist. He launched literacy programs and under his presidency, unemployment fell and levels of poverty decreased. His staffing of key government positions led to accusations of nepotism, though. Chavez's presidency was certainly eventful. In 2000, he launched what he would be known globally for, his Sunday morning TV show, Hello, President. (laughs) Hello, Presidente. So in it, he would talk about national affairs, sing songs and tell stories. Personally, watching it reminds me of the Republica TV bit of the far show. Remember that? Remember, that's that's the one that was based on Mediterranean news channels, where they were always talking about El Presidente and mentioning Chris Waddle. (laughs) Anyway, early on in his presidency, Chavez embarked on a plan to reform the Constitution. On April 25th, 1999, Chavez's plan passed a referendum with 88% support. Therefore, a constituent assembly was created. A new constitution was written, and this too was put to a referendum. The constitution gave more rights to indigenous people, but it also increased the length of the presidential term and allowed the president to run for two consecutive terms. It also renamed the country to the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. As the new constitution was adopted, Chavez felt it necessary to call a fresh election, 
and the presidential election of July 2000 saw Chavez returned with 60% of the vote. That year, Chavez did a deal with Castro that saw thousands of Cuban doctors head to Venezuela in exchange for supplies of oil. In 2001, protests against Chavez started. He decreed that school textbooks should be changed to include Bolivarian material, and parents' groups protested against it. In early 2002, Chavez fired a bunch of executives at the state oil company and replaced them with his allies who had little to no experience of running an oil company. This move made some people pretty angry, and on the 9th of April, the National Federation of Trade Unions called for a general strike. Two days later, a huge opposition march descended on Caracas, where it clashed with a pro-Chavez march. A shootout between the two sides left 19 people dead. Chavez commanded the military to put the Plan Havila into action, which would see the military go into the streets to restore order. Now, something similar was done by President Perez in 1989, and it led to the Caracazo. You know, hundreds of people dying. On top of that, the action was banned by the Constitution that Chavez himself fought so hard to get approved. The military high command refused to put it into operation and instead demanded that Chavez resign. Chavez was arrested, detained, and the business leader Pedro Carmona declared himself interim president. The people of Venezuela then took to the streets in support of Chavez. The coup collapsed and Chavez was returned to power just 48 hours after he was detained. Once back in power, he reinstated the oil executives that he had fired. However, he was faced with a management strike at the oil company, and around 19,000 employees were fired. This led to a huge loss of expertise, and the oil industry never recovered. From June 2011, it was revealed that Chavez was in ill health and had visited Cuba for cancer treatment. He claimed to be fully cured and fought the 2012 presidential election, which he won. However, he soon announced that the cancer had returned and that it would fly back to Cuba for more treatment. On March 5th, 2013, Hugo Chavez died of a severe respiratory infection at a military hospital in Caracas. He was succeeded by his vice president, Nicolas Maduro. Now, since then, Venezuela has disintegrated into a complete mess, but that is another story. Perhaps one that we'll get to tell, but uh, Hugo Chavez, what a character. Yeah, and, and he really, really divides people, even today, because... I, I really am in two minds about Chavez because, you know, there was a lot of nepotism going on, a lot of putting people into places where they shouldn't be and a lot of rejigging of things to really suit him, you know, rewriting the Constitution to increase the length of presidential terms and uh, allowing presidential terms to be consecutive. That's something Putin would have done. That, that really is. But. Also, you have to consider the things that he could have done. He was president. He was in charge of big chunks of the military. And compared to, you know, what South American dictators did in, you know, the 80s and 90s, whatever, he was incredibly restrained. You know, no one met any suspect accidents. No one got executed. And from what we can tell, the elections he contested were free and fair. Because he was a real champion, he was a real champion of the poor, and obviously a lot of poor people voted back then. And the opposition controlled all the media, and you know we know what that what that's like in this country when you've got a te- the media just pumping out hour after hour of you know this guy's no good, this guy's no good. It gets you know it gets into people's heads. So uh, an absolutely fascinating character, Hugo Chavez. Absolutely fascinating. Excellent. Venezuela in the Simpsons. 
<laughs> there's not much of it. There is. Uh, I, I was thinking there's a time when um, groundskeeper Willie uh, is riding his ride on lawnmower and he runs over a football, thinks it's a, a child that he's run over. Uh, and decides to flee to Venezuela. And I've managed to track that moment down to uh, an episode called Fat Man and Little Boy, which is season 16, episode 5. It's not as bad as the lazy name makes it sound. However, just uh, passing quickly over my usual Boy Meets Curl reference, <laughs> I did, whilst, uh, whilst researching this, come across something quite interesting. It's a BBC News story from April 2008. Simpsons ditched by Venezuelan TV. And it tells of the Simpsons being dropped from morning TV in Venezuela after it was deemed unsuitable for children. It was the Caracas TV station Televen that uh, got rid of it. It was in a mid-morning slot for some years, apparently. The country's TV regulator said that their messages go against the whole education of boys, girls and adolescents. It was replaced by Baywatch. Okay, that's that's a bit of a weird one. Sorry, what year was that? That was 2008. Well, The Simpsons was pretty bad by then, so <laughs> replacing it with Baywatch, though, my word. The, the uh, news story also does make mention of the talk show hosted by Hugo Chavez, and in particular an episode which reportedly lasted for eight hours. That sounds about right. That sounds about right, because... A clip I saw of it was was him having a go at George W. Bush, uh, oh. where 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 he was where he was calling him a donkey. He, he was saying uh, un burro, uh, and, and and he even went in, into English for a little bit because Chavez didn't speak English, but but he went um, Mr. Bush, you are a donkey, and <laughs> and you got to remember that back when George W. Bush was president, we thought no one could be thicker as a U.S. president than him. So Chavez calling him a donkey, I would have thought, yeah, fine. <laughs> makes perfect sense. Uh, well, that was the, the saga of Bart the Lover and, uh, and Hugo Chavez. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed that. Don't forget you can find us at retrospectacles.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospectacles. You can email us at podcast at retrospectacus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.